Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after they had fasted, prayed, and laid hands on them, they sent them off. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Elizabeth. We've been studying the book of Acts since this fall, and almost every Sunday, we've been seeing how the key to understanding and learning from the book of Acts is to realize that it was not written as a church manual, that it's not written as a how-to book on how to do church. It's not written as the Acts of Peter or the Acts of Paul or even the Acts of the Apostles. It's written as Acts of Jesus Part 2. At the very beginning of the book of Acts, right in in chapter 1, the author of Acts, Luke, he says to his audience, I wrote to you in my first volume, which is the Gospel of Luke, what Jesus began to do and to teach. Hence, Acts is all about what Jesus continues to do, and to teach. Reading Acts is like looking at his blueprint for how he built the church. It sounds simple, but for me, it's, it's really been a revolutionary concept. For me, as I've been reading and studying the book of Acts, and it's come alive for me in my own heart in a, in a new and incredible way. The last church that we are studying in our series is the church that we just read that's described in the verses printed for you in your bulletin. This is a church in a city called Antioch. And this church, in particular, I see in a special way is a blueprint for what I am praying and dreaming and hoping that Jesus builds here at Trinity. And it's what I see that He is building here with us at Trinity. So this is the second sermon in a four-part uh, vision series for 2019. And why, why Antioch, though? Why is it a special and unique church for us to learn from as, as a church, as Trinity? Well, we, we talked about this last week, but Antioch, it was an incredible place to live in the ancient world. It was full of life and opportunity. It was full of comforts and entertainment, education and pleasures. They really had everything. If I were to be alive in the ancient world, I would want to live in Antioch. They had culture from all over the world. They had every religious option available to them. But somehow, they were still hungry for more. Christianity offered them something that they had never seen before. And when they saw this young church being formed and built, They saw something that they had never, ever seen before, this diverse community, this deep community. They didn't know what to call them, and so they had to make up a new category for this new movement in their city. They invented a new word, the word Christian. 
people who talk about Jesus, people who are trying to act like and follow this man, Jesus Christ. In this city, large numbers of people, they came to faith. They formed healthy, growing, this, this, this vibrant church together. And what began with just a, fl- a few displaced Christians who had fled persecution from Jerusalem unexpectedly became the first ever multi-ethnic church and the first church to send people from their midst intentionally out to bring the message of Jesus to other people and other places. It was an incredible church. And history shows us that they impacted their region, their city, and the world for centuries later. It's a church at Antioch. In this city, which was kind of like an ancient version of Orange County, so much to do, so much to pursue, so many good things to spend your life on, so many distractions. This amazing church, Acts tells us, was characterized by four things. They went deep in Scripture. We looked at that last week. They went deep in prayer. We're looking at that this week. And they went out in compassion and in witness beyond themselves to others. We'll look at those in the coming weeks. Today we're going to focus on prayer. To begin the message, um, just want to do my own confession, my pastoral confession, and say the hardest thing for me to do in preparing this message on prayer was to pray this week. Especially hard. It's, it's been more of a busy and full season than I even imagined or, um, or planned for at this point. There's so much to do. There's so many things happening that as I'm preparing this message on prayer, I'm finding it very, very difficult to pray. And I confess that. I know that many of you also find prayer to be hard. I would imagine here in a room like this that some of you would say, I find prayer to be almost impossible. I can't do it. I've never seemed to get in the groove with prayer. So going deep in prayer, when prayer is so hard for us, it's so hard for me, what about just getting started in prayer? What about learning to pray at all? Well, let me share this, and I I have this printed on the slides. I already alluded to this. What this, the life of the church at Antioch shows us, that a deep and a meaningful personal and corporate prayer life will not come by guilt. It will not come by grit, but only when we are convinced that prayer is a gift. This is where prayer starts, and this is how prayer goes deep. This praying church in Antioch shows us a fourfold gift of prayer. You have three in your bulletin. I'm going to surprise you with the last one at the end. Let's look at these together. The first, I want to call it the gift of breathing, prayer and worship. If you look with me at the first part of verse 2, here we get a picture of the church in Antioch. They're in action, and what are they doing? It says, as they were worshiping the Lord. First question, who is they? They, here in verse 2, refers to the whole church at Antioch, 
mentioned in verse 1. It says, now in the church at Antioch, there were, and it lists five of their leaders. And it wasn't just these five leaders worshiping and praying and being described in action in verses 2 and 3. It was the whole church. And we saw last week that in chapter 11, this is a large number of people. They're all gathered for worship. What does it mean that they were worshiping? When you think of people, churches gathered for worship, what comes to mind? It might be singing. It might be preaching, something like this. It might be what we do um, on a Sunday morning. But the word for worshiping is very specific here. It's the word liturgeo. It's where we get the word liturgy, the English word liturgy. The verb form here of this word says they were worshiping. This means this was their ongoing activity. This is what they were all about. This is what they were always doing. This is what characterized the life of this community. The rhythm at the heart of this community was worship. But what did this worship look like? Based on this short description, we wish we had more. We wish it was more descriptive. What did they do? What did it look like? But based on this, most scholars and commentators say worship here is synonymous with prayer, with corporate prayer. It doesn't mean the only thing that they did was pray. As we know from chapter 11, we know from the rest of Acts and the rest of the New Testament that describes what churches did, that when they gathered, there was listening, there was teaching, there was learning, there was probably regular giving, there was probably singing, there was reading of Scripture, there was serving each other, there was connecting with each other, and there was probably eating that happened as well. But the point here is that it's prayer that turned all of these things into worship. What do I mean? Well, singing can just be singing, right? You can sing in your car. It could be a really awesome experience. You're just driving, you're like, yeah, you know, you're singing your favorite song. You're like, that's, that's singing. It can be a good experience. Reading and learning. It can just be learning. It can be gaining new information. Giving can just be the right thing to do. It's good to be charitable and to be a giving person. We write the check, we put it in. Community can just be for enjoying people I like. Friendship, that's a good thing. Serving can be just, I'm getting the job done. It needs to be done. Eating can just be eating. I know we all like to eat. But it's prayer. It's prayer that animates that gives life to all of these things and turns them into worship. It's prayer that turns our horizontal relationships, communications, and actions into vertical communion with God. This is why many people have compared prayer to breathing. One theologian who made this comparison was Jonathan Edwards. This quote is in in your bulletin in the front, Edwards said, prayer is as natural an expression of faith as breathing is of life. And to say a man lives a life of faith and yet lives a prayerless life is every whit as inconsistent and incredible as to say that a man lives without breathing. Just like a normal day, everything we do in a normal day, we do and we breathe, right? Right? 
The idea here is a Christian. Everything we're called to do, worship, love our neighbors, serve the poor, be hospitable, read Scripture, all of that will feel like we're holding our breath without prayer. It won't feel natural. It'll feel forced. It'll feel like we're just forcing it and getting through. But when God gives us the gift of prayer, that's like when we've been holding our breath underwater for so long and we come out and we breathe. That's the gift of prayer that God wants to give us. Prayer is what breathes the life of God, the Holy Spirit, into our lives. And as we look at the church at Antioch, we see this was a church that was alive with the presence of God, the presence of the living God. Friends, for many of us, for most of us, and for me, I know far too often, as we're trying to live life, as we're trying to follow Jesus, to do Christian things, it's like we're doing it without breathing. Our relationship with God is like short bursts. We hold our breath and we do it. We can often get tired. We can often be burnt out when God gives us that gift of prayer. It is like coming up for breath, like we've been holding our breath for so long. It's the gift of breathing. Secondly, prayer is like the gift of eating. One of the things that stands out about this church, the church at Antioch, from this description is their practice of fasting. Fasting is only mentioned three times in the entire book of Acts, and in all three instances, it's referring to this church, the church at Antioch. They were known for their fasting. Now, fasting is not really directly commanded in Scripture, but it is an expected practice. Jesus said, when you fast, here's what you are to do in His Sermon on the Mount. And He also said His disciples will fast after He has ascended. The idea is not that Christians have to fast. The idea is that Christians will want to fast. Why? Well, fasting in the Bible and fasting here in the church at Antioch is always combined with prayer. It's done for the purpose of prayer, to make time for it, to sharpen and focus fervent and desperate prayer. Fasting is a part of how God teaches us that prayer is, in fact, a gift. How does that look? Well, prayer is for us, and we can put this up on the slide, spiritually, what eating is for us physically. If I don't eat a meal, you don't eat a meal at your regular time, I know that I do, I know that many of you probably do, you get hungry, you get hangry, and you have to eat. It's your sustenance. But if I don't eat for a long, long time, really long time, then I'm starving. If I don't eat at all, then I die. Fasting is a way that we say to ourselves and to God, even more than needing, even more than needing to eat, I need you, God. I need to communicate with you. I need to hear from you. That's the principle behind fasting. But there's a broader principle there with fasting as well. 
And that's this. In order for us to start, in order for us to go deep in prayer and to grow deeper in prayer, it will mean giving up something good to get something better. To get something better, we give up what is good. That something better is a relationship with God, communion with God. And so in fasting, we see a practice whereby which we say no to lesser gifts to gain the greater gift of prayer. In Antioch, I've already said this, they had plenty to do. They had entertainment, they had sports, they had festivals. There was lots of money to be made. There were a lot of experiences to be had, good things, a lot of good things. Here we see a fasting church. And in their fasting, they were training themselves to receive the greater gift of prayer, learning to say no to lesser gifts. Let me illustrate it like this. Um, Valentine's is coming this week, so that's a public service announcement if you're behind on that. And I want you to imagine this Valentine's card. It's always hard to find a good Valentine's card, by the way. It's not so cheesy or just inappropriate, but imagine this one. My Valentine, I love you before all, but I also like my hobbies, my golf, my video games, and I love watching sports, MLB, NBA, NFL, and yes, my beloved NCAA. And my other friendships and relationships are important to me, too. I love them. So my Valentine, I give you Fridays from 7 to 8 p.m. every other week. I love you above all. Now, I'm jesting and I'm joking there. But we, we hear that. We know something's off. Something's wrong. To grow deeper in love means giving up something good. All those things were good things. We give them up in order to get something better. When it comes to fasting, my Christian friends here, sometimes we get confused. Um, sometimes we wonder, should I fast? How do I fast? What, that's, what is that all about? Is that legalistic? Let me just say something clearly, that giving up something for Jesus is not legalism. It is love. Giving up something to get something from Jesus is legalism. Giving up something, practicing anything to gain His blessing, His approval for your life and your agenda, that is underneath it motivated by legalism. But giving up something to get more of Jesus, that's love. So just like eating, which is an everyday practice, the early churches, they prayed fervently and desperately. And they trained themselves they train their heart in love by making use of this gift of prayer. So prayer is like eating. It nourishes us with what we really need. It's a gift. Prayer is like the gift of breathing. It's like the gift of eating, and it's also like the gift of fighting. And you might say, the gift of fighting. I have enough fighting in my workplace or in my family or in my relationships, how, how and why would I want more fighting in my life through prayer? Let me explain what I mean. 
Well, this week I studied this passage, but I also went and studied every instance of prayer that I was able to find from Acts chapter 1 up until here, chapter 13. And here was my takeaway, and I want to share it with you on the screen. And it's seen here in Antioch very clearly. And that's this. It's not so much that God answers the prayer of a church to be sent as it is that God sends a praying church. This is what Acts shows us, and there is a difference. For the church in Antioch, let's come back to this, this text. The last thing they would have thought of, the last thing they would have prayed about and brought to God was for God to send their two strongest leaders out from them. Remember, this was a thriving and healthy church. Barnabas came really early on, and he encouraged them. He was an incredible person to have in your community. Because wherever he went, he always saw God's grace and he encouraged people specifically. He was so important to that church. And then he brought Saul. Saul was probably the best teacher in all the early church. They spent a year together with them, learning from them. So, would they have said, God, do you want to send out Barnabas and Saul, the two most important leaders in our church? I don't think so. It doesn't say that they prayed that. Instead, it says, in prayer, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And the church said, we will, and sent them off. In Acts, this is the other thing I noticed. Every movement of the gospel deeper into a life, every movement of the gospel out from a church is always preceded by prayer every time. And so we might conclude, we might read that include, okay, let's pray for God to do big things. Let's pray for God to use us in a great movement of the gospel. We should pray that. I don't think it's wrong, but it's not how it worked in the book of Acts. Acts is kind of like an expose. If you see something, a title on the History Channel or Discovery Channel, the real truth behind early Christianity, you're like, what's that all about? What is the real truth? Well, Acts is not shy. Acts tells us the real truth behind early Christianity, and that was this. They didn't want to be sent. They didn't really ask to be sent. You know, when Jesus said, he was very clear to his apostles, he said, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And what did they do? They stayed. They didn't go until they were forced to go through the scattering of persecution. Peter did not want to go to the house of a non-Jewish person. His prejudice was, was too deep, but prayer moved him out. These scattered Christians in Antioch, they didn't want to leave their homes. They didn't want to be forced from the city where they lived and everything in their lives was there. But prayer is where they realized why God had brought them to Antioch. Saul, he didn't want to be a Christian even. But in, in his blindness and in his helplessness, he bowed the knee to Jesus. Barnabas and Saul didn't say, send us. But it was the Holy Spirit in prayer who said, I want to send them. Do you see the difference? Thomas Chalmers, 
said this. Prayer does not enable us to do a greater work for God. Prayer is a greater work for God. Prayer is how we struggle. It's how we wrestle. It's where we fight to learn that life is not about us. Prayer is how God breaks us so that He can send us. So when Chalmers says, prayer does not enable us to do a greater work for God, prayer is a greater work for God, I think he's right. The greater work for God is not asking him to enable us to do great things for him. The greater work of God is humbling us and breaking us of pride and self-reliance so that we might know him and be the kind of people that he can work through. Because it is only humble, dependent, needy people whom God can work through. Prayer is not a means to an end. And that's hard for us to learn. Prayer is an end. Prayer is not where we say, God, bless our agendas, bless my plans for my life, bless my vision for you. Prayer is where God gives us Himself and gives us His agenda, His vision and plans for us. And that is a fight. But it's the fight for us to have more of God, to live the life that He's called us and designed us to live. Prayer is the gift of a fight, and God always wins his fights, and that is good news, because when God wins, like the story of Jacob, who wrestled and fought with God and earned a new name, Israel, which means he who fights with God, Jacob was finally broken to receive God's blessing. Where is the gift of fighting, where we learn to know him? and know ourselves so that we can be people who are sent to bless and serve others. Last, prayer is the gift of breathing. Prayer is the gift of eating. Prayer is the gift of fighting. And lastly, prayer, it is the gift of receiving. Going deep in prayer, it does involve practice. It involves training, but more than anything else, because prayer is a gift it involves receiving. Going deep in prayer does not come by guilt. It does not come by grit, but it comes by grace. Something I saw for the first time as I was studying the book of Acts, looking at all the, the instances of prayer in the book of Acts, and then looking at the book of Luke, Volume 1, what Jesus began to do. Volume 2, Acts, what Jesus continues to do. What I never saw, what I never noticed is how the story of Jesus and the story of the church in prayer are told in parallel. Let me explain that. Jesus was commissioned and empowered for His ministry by prayer, being filled with the Holy Spirit at the beginning of His ministry. In Acts chapter 2, the church was born and empowered and filled with the Holy Spirit as they were devoted to prayer. In Acts 8, 
the Holy Spirit filled the new Christians in Samaria. Jesus prayed and was filled with the Spirit. The church prayed and was filled with the Spirit. Before Jesus selected His 12 disciples, He prayed all night. In chapter 1, before the church selected Judas's replacement, the church prayed. Show us, Lord, who should lead. Jesus prayed for His leaders. The church prayed for their leaders. When Jesus suffered and died, His last words were prayer. He prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. Stephen, in Acts 7, prayed these same prayers as he was dying. When he was martyred, his last words were prayer, the same last words of Jesus recorded by Luke, receive my spirit. When Jesus faced his greatest trial, he prayed fervently. The same word is used only one other time in Scripture. It's in Acts 12. We just saw this a few weeks ago. The church was praying fervently for Peter. These are the only two places this kind of prayer in the midst of intense adversity is mentioned. Before Jesus could be sent out, He fasted and He prayed for 40 days. Here, the first church to send people out fasted and prayed. What is Luke trying to tell us? I think he's saying this. Jesus will build his prayer life into his church. Not when we feel most adequate, not when we're trying our hardest, not when we feel like we have it all together and we understand this mystery of prayer, but when we feel most weak and most needy, when we feel most fearful and when we feel like we struggle to hold on to faith, mixed with unbelief. This is where the church learned to pray. When they were clueless, had no idea what to do, Acts 1, they prayed. When they were scared and they wanted to hide, Acts 4, they prayed. When Paul was blind and helpless, Acts 9, he prayed. When Peter was resistant to go, he prayed. His heart was changed. When their leader was killed, when Peter was in prison, when they didn't even believe God would answer them, they prayed. And God met them. The lesson is this, friends. Prayer is a gift that God will give us if our faith is in Jesus. It's one of the things that He is so passionate to build into His church and each one of us that He will do it. We don't learn by guilt or by grit, but by receiving that gift even when we feel at our most needy, weak, and inadequate. It's the best place for us to learn to receive the gift of prayer. Would you pray with me? Our Father, Sometimes it takes every ounce of our heart tuning our ears to what you have to say to believe that prayer is indeed a gift. I pray for all of us here that whether we feel like we are just beginning, starting, struggling with prayer, whether we have stories 
where we have instances in our own journey where you have powerfully met us in prayer. In all of our ups and downs, in all of our struggles to maintain a consistent prayer life. I pray most of all that you would open up our hearts to receive, to believe that prayer is a gift that you are working and will work in those of us whom you love. Teach us. Lead us. Make us praying people. Make us a praying church. Lord, in order that we might see you, know you, and love you. And from there, to be ready and to listen to where you want to send us and how you want to use us. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.